Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Meru Podcast. I'm Open the Raghavan, and welcome to episode two, Framework for Understanding and Engagement. As we start this project and journey, and by the project and journey, I mean Meru Media on the whole and Meru Podcast in particular, I want to take some time and explain a few things. Um, so the purpose of this podcast is to create more understanding and dialogue with the Indic worldview or views. So the reason I say worldviews or, or view is I don't want to just focus on Hindu thought, although that might be the primary area we, we delve into, but a large part of it would also include Jain thought or Buddhist thought, or maybe if we get some people that know Ajivikaism well, Ajivika or Sikhism, Charvaka. So we, we're covering a wide gamut of different thoughts or systems of thinking that were born and and their origins and grew in um, the Indic world. So we'll be covering thousands of years of history, somewhere in the realm of, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000 years of history, depending on uh, various estimates. So we're covering history, uh, knowledge, insights, issues, and wisdom, right? So this is not an entirely easy or simple project. But, hey, nothing good or worth having rarely is easy or simple, right? You know, you want to put the effort in and time in. So we want to do that and bring that to you guys. So in today's podcast, I want to lay the groundwork and framework for this project, both um, in the understanding of how we're going about it and kind of the perspective we want you as the uh, listener and, and the reader on, on the blogs to to take when you look at the information or listen to what we talk about. Um, so much of how we understand Indic ideas, culture, thoughts, and history is usually through the Western framework. And by the Western framework, I mean kind of um, the scholastic understanding of India, of the uh, of history, of philosophy, of thought. It, it as we understand it now, right? It, if, if you were to go take pick up pick up a history book or a textbook or um, a philosophy book or a religious book, it's mostly seen through a Western framework, a paradigm in how they determine. Uh, how to classify things or what is considered history, what's considered mythology, what's considered lore, legend, so on and so forth, right? So that's what I mean by a Western framework. So before I get into what that Western framework actually is and, and delve deep into what the issues are I find there and, and, and how I think we should re-engage um, with the native ideas or um, indigenous ideas of the Indian framework, um, I want to lay out this caveat. So this is a simple point here. The Western framework of social science, history, and some levels of humanities is an amazing and hugely successful methodology for determining some things, right? Things like facts based on physical evidence or things as understanding physical structures and, and, and the science that goes behind uh, breaking down the archaeology and... Uh, the anthropology, the excavations, so on and so forth. Materials, right? That's also part of your archaeology. How how do you? What's the methodology you use to when you find an ancient pottery object? What do you do to preserve it, to date it, to do that kind of work, right? That's 
amazingly successful. Um, and actually, the in some level, the physical text, right? Maintaining physical text, they found it. Uh, they found many texts over the years and have been able to do a great job of um, transcribing it and memor uh, memorializing it uh, for posterity. So, in that in that entire framework, um, the West has done a great job of, of bringing some some great perspectives and knowledge for us to, to 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 kind of delve in with and understand of other cultures and, and their own culture, to be honest. Um, and, and I'm not including here like uh, science, right? Uh, the scientific revolution. That's another podcast for another day to try to understand why it was necessary for there to be a revolution in the West as opposed to having a revolution like that in the East. Because footnote, I mean, it's a quick, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, the, I guess, not the footnotes version? Yeah, footnotes version. Um, basically, the West had to have a break from religion, separation of, of church and state in some regards um, that allowed the rationalist thinking to play a role and guide Western science, I mean, science, not Western science. Science is just the same, whether you're in America, India, or China, Europe, or space, wherever you are. Science, right? The difference is science has been progressively going on in places like India and China because there wasn't that authoritarian authoritarian um ecclesiastical ecumenical power source above uh the thinkers um and and the scientists to force them to recant or change their views to fit into a um a certain paradigm so that happened in the west the break happened scientific revolution so that's just an aside so where the western framework has failed or not been a success is is in the interpretive function of non-Western texts and sources. So this is the framework I, I kind of want to discuss. So this framework has been uniquely born, developed, and evolved through both a Judeo-Christian and Roman Greco-Roman foundation. <clears throat> this framework is the bedrock of most of social sciences that we learn and study in school today, such as sociology, history, anthropology, etc., etc. At the heart of the framework is the idea that there's one truth and one way to view the truth. This idea has been inherited from the Judeo-Christian methodology towards understanding the world. And the second prong that they inherited from the post-Socratic thinkers is that reason is the only method to view this truth. And this is has a hist long history of philosophical thought from the post-Socratic thinkers. The pre-Socratics were a little more open to um, what we would call fuzzy logic or fuzzy reasoning. <clears throat> These two ideas are the foundation of Western perspective. And if you look at the origins of social science in the modern world, it stems from a period of the European Enlightenment in which both these ideas were actually synthesized. So, I mean, the synthesization actually started occurring much earlier, probably in the 10th, 11th century with Aquinas and a few other people as uh, as the Greek texts that had been lost in Europe for hundreds of years were being rediscovered through um, Arabic and Muslim, Islamic thinkers um, who had brought 
and translated the text into um, into Arabic and then also uh, into Latin. And, and and a lot of times that's how uh, people like Aquinas and uh, it, people from 10th to 11th century onwards started getting reacquainted with uh, uh, Greco-Roman thought. So before I delve into the framework, I want to lay out that the West and India have interacted for thousands of years, right? So this it's been a long interaction, and, and to be honest, a very fruitful, fruitful one from the beginning. Um, some of the first interactions between the West and India were probably in what was known as the Axial Age, somewhere around the time between 800 BCE to about 200 BCE. Um, this is the age considered by many to be the time that the foundations of our modern world were laid down. And by that, I mean like things like democracy came up, the philosophy first started coming up in a system, uh, systemized kind of way. Um, and, and, and much of what we still talk about stems from uh, the actual age. So this is the age of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, Parmenides, Heraclitus, and other great thinkers and historians of the ancient Greek world. This period of history also saw an explosion of Chinese thought with Confucius, Lao Tzu, uh, Moti, and, and, and others. Uh, the Persians also had Zoroastra, uh, Zarathustra, sorry, not Zoroastra, that's the Western way, Zarathustra, um, uh, come about in this time period. Although uh, some Persian people or Persian theologians think that Zarathustra was probably a, in a probably like the second second millennium BCE, but I think um, it's probably closer to probably eight nine hundred uh, BCE. Um, the Jewish people at, at this time actually also had Jeremiah and Elijah, right? You know, there are big great thinkers in in the Jewish world. In India, you had Gautama Buddha, Mahavira, Patanjali, uh, 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 Panini, and many other scholars. Um, at that time, some people placed the Upanishads, Mahabharata, and Ramayana in this period, but my personal view is I think it's probably a bit older than the actual age. I think most of those texts probably were somewhere in the realm of at least like 1,200 uh, BCE, if not before that. Um, so in this actual age is when we probably had some of the first recorded interactions between India and the West, particularly the Greeks. Um, I am excluding the second millennium BCE, where there, while there was some interaction between Jewish people and Indic people in the form of Mitanni uh, people and the Hittite people, the Hittite are actually spoken about in the Bible, the, the Jewish people fought with them. Um, we don't actually have enough information about the interaction between the Jewish people and the Indo, I guess you could say Indo-Aryan people. Um, so we don't know what that interaction was like. So I kind of want to leave that out. So let's just focus on the first, not the first, but probably the primary interactions between the Greeks and the Indians. So that first major moment of interaction that we can, I guess, speak about based on, um, evidence, uh, from both, from both parties, from both, the Indian texts and the Greek texts without having to kind of like think about how do we trace certain thoughts. So this is clear evidence is the conquest of Alexander of Macedonia, the fourth century BCE. And in particular, after the battle of Hydaspes, I, I totally messed up that, um, in 
326 BCE against uh, Pururvas, also known to the Greeks as Porus, saw the deepest interaction. From this battle, there was a time period for about 200 years of deep interaction between the West and India. So Megathenes, a uh, Greek ambassador to the court of Chandragupta Maurya, wrote about his time in India. And in that book, actually, it's called Indica. It doesn't fully exist anymore. There's bits and pieces that are still there. But this was the first probably major book written about first-person experience of India. So Herodotus did write about India, but his information was all secondary sources like or even you know like some ways it was hearsay someone told him something so that's where he came up with like stories of like you know there's great great giant ants that go dig for gold and and there's flying yogis and things like that so Herodotus his information is all secondary sources so uh Megathenes um actually is primary he lived in India he was a Greek ambassador to Chandragupta Maurya right so he was there um so in his is the first person account in India from uh, a personal perspective. Um, and so Herodotus, uh, he wrote in 5th century, but uh, so Megathenius wrote about 150 years, 200 years after Herodotus uh, wrote his histories. Um, so, and Herodotus has actually got a lot of his information from, you know, people like uh, uh, the Persians and things like that. So we have little – you end up with a much more coherent picture with uh, Megathenes. So Herodotus and uh, Thucydides are both considered to be the fathers of – by most historians, the fathers of history, meaning that they are the foundation of how history has been done. Uh, I mean some people will call them proto-history, but I think they're, they're probably the closest realm to get um, to the foundations of modern history. Before them, history was preserved in – in bardic tales and kind of oral traditions, much like the Jewish people had done for hundreds, if not a thousand years, right? So Thucydides' methodology was unique in his time because unlike Hesiod or Homer before him, who were both, um, I guess, bardic, bardic, bardic authors, uh, Hesiod wrote the Theogony, which was the origin of the gods, um, and Homer obviously is most famous for the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, so uh, Thucydides had removed any notion of non-materialistic causes in his work, uh, meaning that history was simply a product of human beings, emotions, and state actors. Unlike Hesiod and Homer, who had kind of played that divine forces and gods and supernatural elements had a role to play or guided uh, much of what happened. So, Thucydides' concept is a revolutionary concept. Uh, around the same time, both Socrates and Plato developed what would be termed philosophy, the love of wisdom, and used reason as a basis for that study of wisdom. Both of these ideas were pivotal to humankind and formed the, and informed what the, the later, later thinkers would develop into the European Enlightenment. So, we dealt with the Greek portion. So let's get into the Judeo-Christian element that I brought up earlier. So the Judeo-Christian ideas, history, morality, and ontological reality undergird this framework, this Western framework. And let me explain. The Jewish people saw their history as the true history of the world to the exclusion of all others. That's a very important point that we'll play into as we discuss. 
Um, Dr. Bala Gangadhara, who is a professor of religion in Utrecht, uh, lays out this framework. Um, he, he's written quite a bit about this, and I think it's a, if you've got a chance or opportunity to read his, his work, you should. Um, he shows how Christians took the view of history and proclaimed, proclaimed it to be the only true history of all humanity. It wasn't just a story about them, like the Jewish people or the Christian people, but rather it was a story about all people, all human beings since the dawn of time. The story starts with the creation of the universe. Adam and Eve, all the way down to Jesus, then to the future that is set by the book of Revelations. The stories of all other peoples are false and evil, actually, and many times are considered to be product of Satan, stemming from Satan, the adversary of God. The world is the battleground between good and evil. Everyone must pick a side. So that's kind of the, the, the beginning of the framework. In this Judeo-Christian view, religions, ideas, and history Stories and traditions of other people were false and evil, something that had to be discarded, not considered. Not only that, these people would be shown the light of truth, willing or not. People were called heretics, blasphemers, and so on in order to discredit them and their ideas. It was one way, one truth, and one history without deviation. That was the fundamental premise of Jewish Christian thought, that there was one truth one way to that truth, and one history. Diversity of thought, ideas, and religions died in the realms of Christianity, and then later Islam. So, I mean, that's just a fact. Um, you don't find much of the, the pagan practices of both the Arabian world and also the Greco-Roman world were kind of systematically destroyed um, and, 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 and kind of chased away where you don't see any more remnants of Mithraism or even the Egyptian religions and any place, any of the local native beliefs that existed in those, in those lands were systemically wiped away. I mean, they killed the gods of the ancient world, not through a legitimate battle of ideas, but through power, conversion by force and discrediting others, a tactic that was employed through time till present. So, it's important to recognize that it was not a battle of ideas because what happened is when in the 4th century CE or the Common Era, after um, Christianity became the religion of the state, right, became the religion of the Roman Empire, it was a systemic, systemic pogrom to to destroy, chase away, convert people that weren't Christian, right? Um, so basically what happened to beginning in Christianity, in some sense, the Christians flipped and did to their own people that they actually now were um, ruling over. So it was so much of the old thought views were wiped away and gone, right? Um, and, and the same happened in the Islamic world. Uh, to this day, if you go to many Islamic countries, very few will you still find any um, remnants of uh, other cultures or other ideas or thoughts or practices that were before theirs. Um, it, it, I mean, there are some places, right? Indonesia is one of them. Um, Malaysia. Uh, it, they had a, a long history of Buddhism and Hinduism, so somehow they just they continue to survive. So 
let's put it this way. It is why most of the world calls non-Judeo-Christian Islamic stories as myths. Not stories or histories, but as mythology. It was a way to overcome any deviation in other people's or native people's histories and ideas is to call them mythology or, or, or legends or lore. There was, so let's be frank right now. People still think Moses is a historical character, but there's no more evidence for Moses than there is for Manu. Yet Moses is real and Manu is a fictional character. Um, in many ways, you know, like that's, that's how it was done. Um, you, you mythicize somebody else's ideas that discredits them. And once those ideas are discredited, you no longer have to deal with them or contend with them in, um, in a reasonable or logical manner. You can just discard them. So from here, I mean, there's a lot of information, but I mean, that could have been fit in for, for a while. But from here, I want to jump about 2000 years to the 19th century. Um, and see the development of the other leg of the Western framework. So let's start with G.W. Hegel in the 19th century. G.W. Hegel is one of the foundational thinkers in developing the philosophy of history that has been in vogue for over the past 200 years. Right. So for Hegel, history is a process of the unfurling of human freedom. It is an idea that he finds in the history in the, in the view of history that is articulated in the Christian worldview, the idea of successive prophecies, revelation, and relationship to God, to first the Jewish people, then finally to the world through Jesus. Hegel lays out this vision in his monumental work, Phenomenology of Spirit. So for Hegel, history is an objective process of viewing the spirit self-discovery. In other words, history has a purpose or telos in the Greek, which means end. Um, much like the Christian paradigm, human existence is all tumbling towards the inevitable end of God's reassertion of power, control over the universe. This conception of history is called dialectical or dialectic. Hegel's dialectic wasn't a complete dialectic. It didn't presume to explain all things in history, but more so the unfolding of human freedom and knowledge of God. Other words, development of ideas and reason. So for God, for, for Hegel, God and reason were linked, right? So as more as human beings passed through time, through su successive uh, revelations and progress, they were able to get closer and closer to their connection to God via understanding themselves. And that for him is the way history was, was playing out. It was unfurling of that self-discovery of the spirit in understanding its, its, its larger view and, and connecting it with reason. So following Hegel in the 19th century, another world-renowned thinker took the idea took this idea and applied it not to just history, but economics and all forms of societal development. This thinker postulated that the dialectic or the process of history wasn't something abstract, like the unfolding of human freedom 
but the actual material world of human of humankind through the constriction of a power dialectic between the modes of production. So if this sounds vaguely familiar, it should be. Most of us have studied them, or some of us have, and a lot of people hate him just because of his name, but it's the world of it's the work of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Marx and Engels viewed history as a as composed of two things: the modes of production, i.e., the productive forces like resources, including human labor, and also the relations of productions how the modes of production are related to each other in power, access, and other, other uh, uh, I guess, uh, elements. The mode of production, the modes of production would be the economic system and the relations of production would be the power system. So it's, they're, they're kind of connected, right? So you have your economic system would, would inevitably be connected to your power system. Um, so history for uh, Marx and Engels is a linear process of both of these materialistic forces evolving over time from what they call the primitive communalism of hunter-gatherers to ancient a mode of which slavery and rule by a small aristocracy aristocracy, aristocracy sorry I can't I totally messed that up uh, aristocracy to capitalism and then finally a communist mode of production. I haven't gone, I haven't given every step of this evolution, just a general outline because it's more detailed and intricate. So for Engels and Marx, your power structure and your economic structure are connected. So if but by definition, if you're a feudal system, the power the power will be held in the, the hands of the lords and and not in the serfs, right? And if you're in capitalism, the power will be held in the hands of your oppressive class. Which would be your uh, employers, uh, maybe the government, um, and and the press would be the, the wage laborers, right? Who had to um, work to make their money. So that's kind of how his system works in a very very simple um, snapshot. So this vision of history as a constant power struggle is one that has overrun nearly all popular philosophies of history and to this day, and even now. And even how facts of history are interpreted to a devastating degree. Um, so I know I'm kind of jumping around all over the place, but um, I'll connect it. Um, so I'm going to go from Marx and Engels, and I'm jumping to the final leg of the Western paradigm. So there's one more. So this final leg, or um, I guess if, if you want to call it a tripod, this would be the third leg, um, that had a huge impact even into the modern era. So this is this is the project of Western colonialism. So the colonial endeavors of the European nations from the 15th to 20th century has caused a huge, huge um, impact of, on the globe, right? And and that's that's pretty easy to understand. It still touches today, and but its impact goes so deep, it still plays into our academic and um, educational systems. So the British, through the East India, English East India Trading Company, came to India in, in 1611. And over the next 
150 years from approximately 1611 to about 1757, somewhere around there, or a little bit past that, um, systematically, economically, and with private military, funded by the British government, took over many areas of India, strategically using various kingdoms and sultanates in India against one another. By the late 1800s, the British government had taken over most of India. It was during this time that came, they came with two ideas, two pretty messed up ideas, to be, to be honest. So the first idea is the white man's burden. And the second idea is the idea of racial antagonism between the newly created ethnic groups of Arya and Dravidian. So let's get into the first one. First, white man's burden was a term coined by Rudyard Kipling in explaining the pejorative idea that the British and Christians had a duty to civilize the primitive and backward non-white people of the world. So this was a poem written by Kipling to buttress the United States' interaction with the Philippines. So while it wasn't particularly written for India, it was applied to India and any other country in the world which had a non-white, non-Christian population. This project was already discussed for a while within Britain concerning their duty in India, best exemplified by Thomas Babington Macaulay, a member of the Supreme Council of India. And he said, quote, We must at present do our best to form a class who may be interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern, a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals, and in intellect. It was an so end quote. It was an attempt to civilize and Christianize both Indians and Hindus. At the same time that that uh, Macaulay was trying to what would be called Brown Sahibing um, India, um, another person in South India did uh, something similar. His name was Robert Codwell who was a British missionary and subsequently a linguist. So he developed the idea of a Dravidian people as opposed to an Aryan people. Both of these terms were based on race. The theory was this. The original inhabit inhabitants of India, of the Indian subcontinent, were a dark or black-skinned people with flat-nosed, um, and they were to be called Dravidians. So the idea is at some point in the second millennium BCE, White-skinned nomadic invaders, known as the Aryans, invaded the region and took over. This haphazard theory, if you could call fanciful imagination that, was held to be sacrosanct until the past few decades. So I remember even hearing about this in college in 1997. It was developed in large part by Codwell to support his missionary efforts to break the traditional connection that the people of South India had with their history and culture and posit a false narrative imposition of that culture by a white-skinned dominating group of people known as the Aryans. So just, I don't want to get deeply into the Aryan Dravidian thing because it is a huge, huge problem. And historically, and even, even now linguistically, it's still raging to be honest. Um, I mean, originally the term Aryan was applied to a group of linguists, I mean, um, linguistic group, right? So uh, people that spoke an Aryan language were considered to be Indo-Iranian. Because um, actually, both Indians, 
or ancient Indians and ancient Iranians call themselves Arya, which simply means noble, a noble people, noble civilization. It wasn't an ethnic group related. It was a group related to a culture, a civilized people, things like that. So both the British and actually I, I don't want to blame this. I mean, blame this all on the British. It was actually a German and British kind of, uh, uh, I guess, um, theory that came out right. They, not only with um, people like uh, Babington or Ca uh, Caldwell, also people like Max Mueller, Jacoby, a um, um, bunch of people uh, uh, in Germany, uh, Indologists at the time, uh, came up with this theory that um, you know basically. The Aryans were invaders and took over, and Dravidians were were natives who were black skinned and different. And and part of this was driven by their uh, desire to connect to an ancient um, people that they could call their own, which they think the Aryans were. That's a whole other story we can get into at some other time. So, getting back to the uh, the main point, history and religion were part of the same endeavor. The progress, I mean, as we can see with people like Cadwell and Babington and um, even Hegel, uh, history and religion are part of the same kind of study. The progression of events over time leading humanity to some particular goal, either communism or the full knowledge of God's revelation, using reason as a way to understand. That is what history is now concerned with right so it's as if over time we are going somewhere we're progressing towards something something final something absolute very much in the line of revelations right which is why you end up with when the when the berlin wall came down many western thinkers started shouting this is the end of history as if it won't keep going and it won't keep happening I mean, obviously, they know history was going to keep going forward, but they thought it was at this pivotal point in, in human history that we're going to see a shift away from uh, these backward ways of thinking into a capitalistic, perfect paradise kind of world thinking, very much in the line of Revelation, in the, in the book of Revelations, right? So I think putting these pieces together, what we see is we take this. We take the... The vision of history given by uh, Christianity and Judaism as uh, progress towards one truth, and it's the story of all humanity, along with the the Greek perspective that only thing that that can help us survive or that's worth engaging with is reason, um, and reason is like the best way to engage with the world. Um, and then the third leg would be your the racist. The racist um, theories plus white man's burden applied has created from the late 18th, early 19th century, a huge, huge impact on what history is and how you engage with non-Western non world. So this framework had been imposed upon most of the world from the 16th to 20th centuries, right, by the colonial nations. Um, and it's, it, it, was, it, was, it was to show, basically, that their view, their worldview was the most civilized and the most correct, 
and all other views about their own, all of the cultures and histories, their own views about themselves was false and in fact ignorant. That the West can show the other other people of the world what their own history is, what their own culture is, what their own ideas are. The absolute dominance of reason coupled with Judeo-Christian ideas, I want to reaffirm this, is the absolute dominance of reason coupled with the Judeo-Christian ideas of progress of history and the racist theories of the European colonial people created a new and destructive way to interact with other people, other histories, other traditions, and other values. So these ideas helped dismantle the people, traditions, and ideas of India, even to this day. The application of these ideas has created a lasting divide based on false narratives of history and relationships of people in India. For example, as mentioned before, the Aryan Dravidian theory that is still peddled by many political parties for their own purposes and gains in, in southern India, particularly in Tamil Nadu. And additionally, this is how how history done how history is done in India is also currently very much a, I would guess a, a, I, mean, I would say a, a Marxist uh, power dynamic that always plays across. Right, everything is viewed in power dynamics. So what was previously seen through history by by natives of India, uh, the native Indians and people that follow traditions, they saw a unity and continuity of these traditions in history. And, and that's and that's been through most of what we know as history. But now that that same unity and continuity is seen as an imposition of force by a group of of small of a small group of people trying to exert power and control this fracturing of indian traditions and people have seeped into our consciousness today where people no longer care to understand or even know their own ideas or past right it's a, it's the idea that that what does my tradition know about anything what what does what does it have to say about their own understanding of their own viewpoints and histories and culture no no we don't want to hear that we want to hear what the objective scholars in the west have to tell us right there's this sense constantly of inferiority about scholarship and and not to say that that the scholarship in in india is bad but it's just that they, they, they tend to think that the scholars of the west have a much better grasp of their own history than they do so what I want to do now is I kind of laid out and I spent quite a bit of time laying out all of this and it's probably all scattered and fragmentary and um, but I think it connected at the end and, and hopefully it made sense. But in contrast to that Western framework, the Indic framework of interpretation is one in which there's there is a truth just like the, the Western framework. There's one truth, but that truth has many ways to be viewed and many ways to understand that truth. And that comes with, along with the idea that reason is not the ultimate ultimate entity of, of thought, but is merely a tool. It's just a tool, but it's a tool in which you can help to view the truth. It's not the way to view the truth, absolutely, but it's one way to address viewing things or interacting with things or or de dealing with scholarly kind of um, understandings. So let me explain it this way. 
In Christian thought, the truth of the Bible is found in the fact that certain things happened in history as a fact. And truth and fact are equated as the same thing. Fact is truth, and truth is fact. In the Indic framework, fact is a truth, but not the only truth. The fact of whether Krishna lived or not is not relevant to the truth of the views espoused by Krishna or the truth of what Krishna represents, stands for, or is. Whether the events in the Upanishads occurred, in fact, or not, does not make the claims that they state to be untrue or unreal. They weren't bound to the confines of time or history, but rather were eternal, existing in the minds and experiences of people who engaged them. Historic fact, esoteric understanding, and metaphysical truth all existed together, but not exclusively against each other, which is what you kind of have with the Western paradigm. The idea that fact is the only thing that matters as opposed, as opposed to there's a truth behind these facts. And whether the fact existed or not doesn't really play into the truth of something. So in the Indic way, things were seen as being holistic and various. The same historical figures or events were seen from a variety, uh, various perspectives because the perspectives had something to impart to our internal lives, a message to give. It is not to say that the facts of history weren't important. They were, but the facts aren't all the truth. Is it more important that Buddha existed? Is, is it more important that he existed as a person? Or is it more important that the things he said or, or attributed to him are are, are factual or that his message and ideas are true. What's more important? Is it important that, that Buddha existed back then and, and he actually said those things? Or is it true that the things he said have an impact on our lives, right? So for, I mean, from a practical perspective, we can sit here and say, yeah, you know, you know Buddha existed, but what does that matter? But the moment you start doing like mindful meditation or think about the nature of mind and engage with the, the thought process that was developed from Buddha, that can actually have a transformative impact on your life. So what is more true at that point? So put that aside. So the Indic view of its own histories were varied. It was understood that they were trying to recreate the past, and such recreation is by its very nature a subjective interpretive one. While there may be one truth, it is varied based on its perspective. Such such stories of people, therefore, were varied. Details of events were varied because people viewed and saw it differently. So the, the Western model, which is very laudable, is to, is to assume that there's something, one thing that occurred. And, and there's one interpretation of what could have been. So if we can use a – I, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm just going to use an example, right? So American Revolutionary War, why did it happen? We know it happened. The, the fact is there that it happened, but why did it happen? Did it happen because uh, Americans wanted freedom from the British, uh, because they were economically suppressed, where they uh, just wanted to have power? Um, you know, what was the reason? And there's a variety of different interpretations, but each person claimed that their interpretation is entirely correct. So the endeavor is seen as there's one truth, one interpretation of this, this is the only way it can be, as opposed to um, the Indic view, which it says, okay, there's this fact that it did occur, 
But there is a variety of different perspectives to take towards that. And maybe the fact that it occurred or didn't occur doesn't even matter, right? And what matters is what are we going to learn from it? So let me use a, a better example within the Indic uh, world of how we um, can show the difference between um, a Western framework applied to Indian um, Indian, I wouldn't say mythology, but but an Indian story. Okay, so let's use Ravana um, from the Ramayana. So, for example, Rama, Ravana was the king and ruler of Lanka. He was Rakshasa. Um, many South Indians view Ravana as one of their own, a Dravidian who was attacked and oppressed by the Aryan Rama. How did such an idea arise? Well. It was based on the above Aryan Dravidian theory. The facts, the facts of Ravana were force-fitted into a narrative. So the Valmiki of Ramayana, which is the earliest text that we have of Ravana, um, itself included Mary, in, itself includes many variant retellings, readings, and so on. But the Valmiki Ravana says this: that Ravana was a Brahmana. Ravana was a Rakshasa, a king of Lanka, a great king, a womanizer, a devotee of Shiva, and an arrogant person who saw his power as a mandate for his, for whatever his desires were. He wasn't even from what we now call South India. But the, pro the proponents of Dravidian ideology don't even accept these things because they view Ravana as simply a good Dravidian ruler who's oppressed by the Aryans. When Ravana wasn't from the South, when Ravana isn't described as uh, uh, being from that region or or born there or raised there or anything, he isn't described as being a Dravidian. He isn't described as being, you know, um, a, a perfect person or a great king or whatever. He actually is described as a great king. So he is described as a great king, but with a lot of flaws. So in the South Indian or not South Indian, but the, the Dravidian political uh, method of viewing Ravana, his numerous acts of violence and against others and, and even rapes of women are glossed over to achieve this idea of Ravana as a perfect or a great Dravidian king and that Rama is portrayed as a self-righteous Aryan oppressor who hates, non, who hates all non-Aryas and women. Um, it just plays into their political agenda. And actually, it, it, uh, it also plays into a lot of the historical um, ways that they have viewed uh, um, history in India. For example, again, would be suddenly, if you, want to, if you want to view history in the Aryan Dravidian thing, you'll start seeing Rama's expansion or going south into the southern kingdoms from Ayodhya um, as an Aryan expansion. Um, he goes into the forest. He must be interacting with the native forest people and converting him to his 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 cause. And it was it's all seen in a framework in which there's a power struggle, and the stories are not taken for what they are. They're taken rather as for what what you think they're what they're about based upon your ideological views. So nuance and the traditional sources. And histories are eschewed to force fit the story into a narrative that is based on racist, Marxist, and Judeo-Christian ideologies. Traditional histories and sources accept both the good and the bad of Ravana 
and do not make it to be a dichotomy of good versus evil, as we get in the Judeo-Christian framework. Rather, it is based on dharma and adharma, which are not good versus evil. A dharma and a dharma, a dharma, and a dharma are not good and evil. They're, they're something else. And we'll get into dharma as a deep, in, deeply intricate topic in a later podcast. So Ravana, in, in, in much of the Western position of thought into Indian framework, I mean, in the Indian view, Ravana is considered good and Rama is evil. I'm not saying Indologists are doing this, like scholars in the West. This is actually something that started uh, by scholars in two centuries ago, which is still accepted by a large, large group of people in India, right? Which is insane to me, right? It, the, the theory's kind of been thrown out the window, debunked, but it still persists because it was seen as being objectively true because it came from the West. So... The Indic framework doesn't adhere to dichotomies. This is a very important point of dichotomies of absolutes. The Indian framework doesn't adhere to that. That is a fundamental Judeo-Christian and Islamic viewpoint about absolutes, good and evil, right and wrong, um, you know, sin and and not sin and hell, heaven and hell and God and Satan. All these things are absolutes. We don't in the Indian framework, you don't have those absolutes. There, I mean, absolutes exist, but they exist in a relative format. And, 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 and that is very important as to how people view um, relationships as not one or the other, but a spectrum, a lot. So it's vitally important that we approach the Indic ideas with the Indic framework, not a Western one. The Western framework ignores the raison d'etre, of Indic traditions and histories and tries to tell these traditions and histories from its own perspective, which destroys the actual lessons, ideas, and understandings of these traditions. So, I mean, this is not a tangent, but it's important. So I recently saw this movie Kala by P.A. Ranjit with Rajnikanth, the South Indian superstar acting in it. The entire movie was an attempt to flip the traditional ideas of Rama and Ravana on its head. Rajnikanth plays the uh, title character Kala, which means black and fumel, and is portrayed as a kind of Ravana in a Dravidian Marxist lens. He is a social justice warrior who stands for the downtrodden in the slums of Mumbai, associated with the color black, which is viewed by many as a color of evil. Um, in a quote, I mean, on the side note, in, Indi in Indian thought black is not evil um and we'll get into that just in a few minutes the villain is is a man named haridada played by nana patikar who's portrayed as a rama of sorts and is always dressed in white and concerned with purity and uniformity a caricature of the brahminical or aryan people haridada is a politician with a lot of power while Kala is a lower class leader who is constantly oppressed by Haridada and his ilk. This is seen as the status of the Arya Dravidian relationship. Now, what is the actual story in the Ramayana, in the, in the relationship of, of Rama and Ravana, in the traditional uh, storytelling? Rama is a prince who is exiled and lives in the forest with his wife and brother, with no possessions and no political power. He is also described as being dark. And is called Shama, which in Sanskrit means dark, blue, 
or black in color. Sita is kidnapped by Ravana. Sita is Rama's wife, and she's kidnapped by Ravana, and Rama storms Ravana's kingdom and fights him on the battlefield and kills him after he gives him numerous opportunities to return Sita and avoid war. So Rama's purpose for going to fight Ravana was not for power, was not for gain, but to win back his wife. Now, Ravana is depicted in, in the Ramayana also as dark, as a color of sapphire. Rama and Ravana are dark. So I, again, this is a willful um, ignorance on people who, who place Ari and Dravidian dynamic in. Ravana was also a powerful king who had subdued even the gods and was nearly invincible in battle. He had a mighty army of warriors and vast weaponry. Rama's army was Vanaras, forest-dwelling monkey human humanoids without weapons of their own who used their natural strength and speed along with trees and rocks as weapons. Now, who looks like to be the downtrodden one? And how is this ignored and subverted? The answer is clear. It is ignored because it doesn't fit into a narrative developed by the racist theory of Dravidian oppression. Codwell's theory, which was out and out based on racist views that there were prevalent that were prevalent in Europe and the U.S. about black people or darker skinned people being less than white people, darkness of skin was linked to oppression of people to was linked to oppressed people, ugliness, impurity, and stupidity, and so on. For thousands of years in the Indian framework, dark skin color was equated with other skin colors. Sometimes it became a mark of beauty, and other times it was just a description of color. Nothing to do with linking up to evil or oppression. This idea is much more of a recent phenomenon linked to both the Islamic invasions and the British ideas of beauty. They are assimilated by the Indic people. The movie Kala doesn't take any of these things into consideration because Western conceptions of India, via Dravidianism and Marxism, don't allow it. Now, R Ravana isn't evil or good, but a complex being who has positive negative qualities. Rama, even if viewed as God, isn't perfect, but a being who lived, lives in our experience, and is multidimensional. Rama and Ravana are both considered, both consider themselves Arya, not in the linguistic or racial sense, as there is no racial Aryan or, or Dravidian, but rather as a people who are viewed being part of the same cultural and civilizational world view. Their story, the story of Rama and Ravana, is a story for all of us to know and learn from, not simply to think they existed in a specific time and place. Their history isn't simply a process of unfurling, but a dynamic dance in which we place ourselves both as observer and participant, a history that isn't simply known as the past, but one that lives with us constantly every time we engage with it. Since the Indic framework was open, inclusive, and diverse, it allows for a host of ideas, traditions, histories, and religions. Buddha, for example, was shared between the Buddhists and Hindus. He is Buddha of Buddhism, but also Buddha an avatar of Vishnu in Hinduism. Numerous Tirthankaras of Jainism. Tirthankara means the, the, the Ford breaker, right? So a Ford builder, I'm sorry, the Ford builder. And, 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 and they were shared between the Jains and Hindus. Some of them were, not all of them. Dialogues were 
constantly engaged between Buddhists, Hindus, Jains, Jivikas, Tantrikas, I mean Tantrics, and others. Ideas were debated and dialogued with. Histories were varied but shared. He, the Ramayana Mahabharata were adopted and retold by Jains and Buddhists, along with local communities in their own respective, in their own perspective and respective ways throughout time. People could take what worked for them as perspectives of truth. Good and evil wasn't the framework of thought, rather transformative experience. It was true unity through diversity. So I want us to put aside the ideas and translations of stories, words, traditions that we are used to as presented to us by the Western framework. It doesn't offer us the proper lens in which to engage with the Indic world. So in that light, we will present stories, histories, and traditions within our own framework, the Indic framework. And in, 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 in the Indic words, not those that have been placed upon us. So what I mean by that is some words that if you can't translate them, I won't. Like dharma or karma necessarily or brahman or various other words. I won't translate them. I'll give uh, a larger explanation, but it should not be translated. It should remain in the native language just because you won't get that full experience. So the framework by which we view things is foundational. It allows us to understand some truths and some ideas, while sometimes other frameworks impose false falsehoods on the material and color our perspectives in the lights that aren't there. So let's respect the tradition and the framework as they were born in, developed, and viewed instead of acting as if the native frameworks are merely myths, false, or primitive. So the larger reason why I wanted to do this piece and I know it's long and and it can be a little tough is because I think it's so important to understand first what what framework was imposed on us and then what is our way to get out of it and deal with the work we're dealing with so I hope I accomplished that today I hope it was somewhat interesting and informative uh, I apologize for any mistakes I've made or any uh, branch I went on. Um, but thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy it and have a great week. Take care.